Uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 12. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn there? Again, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's going to be some people walking around to pass that to you. Would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture? Father, we come with open hearts and open hands, ready to receive what you would have for us today. God, we just confess that we come into this room um, so often just distracted by the busyness of our lives and um, the chaos that sometimes is um, creeping at our doors. But God, we want to come first to worship Jesus but then also to be part of his body that we call the church. Give us grace to see today. Help us not just to come in here and go through the motions, but to leave transformed. We love you, in Jesus. Amen. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You can be seated. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So says the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. The circumstances of this letter are well known. A founding pastor now in prison chained to a Roman guard, facing the prospect of being executed by the empire. Written to a small church, under persecution from their own city, because they have declared Jesus is Lord and King, and Caesar is not. In the midst of imprisonment, persecution, imminent death, and likely discouragement, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. During the Advent season, the church celebrates the coming of Jesus, the Messiah of the world. His birth was no ordinary birth, his life was no ordinary life, and his death was certainly no ordinary death. Wrapped up in the person of Jesus is this reality that we call joy. And this season is described as a season of joy because for the church, true joy is found in the Christ. Paul indicates in his letter to the Philippians that they ought to live in this reality of joy, not based on their circumstance, circumstances, but based on something entirely different. He encourages them to press on with perseverance, trusting that their God will complete his work in them in the day of Christ Jesus. It has been said that familiarity leads to unfamiliarity, Unfamiliarity leads to contempt, and contempt leads to profound ignorance. 
This is not only true of the Christmas season, but it is also true more specifically for our topic of joy. Joy is often seen as an experience dependent upon our ability to control our lives and the world around us. Joy becomes, for some of us, based on external circumstances going our way. We have bought into the thinking that if we have a good life and consume what we want, we will have found, we will have found true joy. In a society obsessed with rights and freedom, we assume that it is our right to live a life determined by our desires and our vision of what the good life is. Only then, we assume, that we can, can we truly find joy. The problem is that control is an illusion. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job, or a rift between old friends quickly shows us that no matter how much we think we deserve a painless life, external circumstances change and shift without our input. No matter how much we try, we can never fully control our lives. If joy is based on our ability to control, then we will be yearning and striving for a happiness that is unattainable for the rest of our lives. Joy, it would seem, cannot be based on our circumstances. Joy must be based on something else entirely. In another letter of Paul's, one to the church in Rome, Paul would write, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, the kingdom that we as disciples of Jesus Christ are made part of, is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that would also mean that one of the key markers of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a joyful person. To be the church is to be a joyful people. As the church, we must look past the shallow nature of our world and instead look to the truth of the kingdom of God in order to receive this gift of joy. For our very character as the church depends upon it. We find these truths, the truths of the kingdom of God, the truths of joy, and the truths of Jesus Christ written to us in the form of a story. A story about Israel, about their God, and about Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel writer Luke introduces us to that story and invites us to become participants in it. For Luke isn't writing just to tell a story, but in order to transform the way his readers see the world around them. If you've ever read the gospel of Luke, you know that Luke begins with two prophetic songs. The first was sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the second by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Both songs have a dual purpose to start out Luke's account of the things of Jesus Christ. First, they declare Israel's hope that their God would be faithful to his covenant, a very important under, a key to understand for the rest of the story. And second, these songs illustrate or describe or foreshadow the very essence of the life of Jesus. Mary declares, the hope of the outcasts of Israel and their faith in a covenant God when she says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Zechariah echoes the same thoughts as he sings, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to bring salvation from our enemies, to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, and to enable us to serve him without, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Israel's need for hope came from the fact that all was not well with the Jewish people. The prophets of old had spoken of a day when after their exile, God would restore and redeem Israel. After being exiled to a distant land, they had returned to Israel only to be ruled by the Roman Empire. They had hoped that their return from exile would be the beginning of a covenant renewal with their God. But their land was controlled by enemies, their temple was built by a false king, and not all Israelites were faithful to the ways of the covenant. Israel longed to be true to the way of their God, and they waited for the day when his glory would descend upon the temple just as it did for King Solomon after he had built it. They longed for a day when the promised land was purged from all those who opposed them, and they hoped for a day that when the, that the people of God would once again live rightly according to the ways of the covenant. And it was in this historical hope, this hope of Israel, this hope rooted in the prophets of old, that Luke sets the stage for Jesus. These songs point to Jesus and to his nature as if to tell Luke's readers, here is the answer to Israel's hope. Is everybody with me? All right, good. It was in this hope, Israel's hope for redemption, that we can understand what the Jews meant by phrases like, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The salvation Israel longed for was to be once again part of the true Israel, the people of God. Their joy would re be restored when the presence of God was with his people and they were free from their enemies. And it was with this same understanding that David wrote, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. While this psalm was born in a moment of personal sin for David, it most certainly became a sort of national anthem for the people of Israel as they cried out for lament and forgiveness. Israel understood that the, king, the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom, would be one filled with joy because salvation had finally come to the people of God. And it was this joy and salvation that Jesus came announcing as part of his kingdom message. Jesus' self-proclaimed mission statement was, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because this is why I was sent. Echoing the words of Isaiah, uh, Jesus declared, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the, for, of the sight for the blind, 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus saw that it was his divine role to usher in the kingdom of God that would be the grand return from exile that Israel was longing for. And it was through Jesus that once again, Israel would be the light of the nations and that God's joyful presence would be among the world. Luke shows us how Jesus inaugurates his kingdom by the battle with Satan, telling kingdom stories, casting out demons, sharing meals with sinners, healing all sorts of people, calling disciples, and teaching the way of the kingdom. The joy of the Lord was finally breaking through history. Redemption was happening. The people of God were being gathered together to experience the fullness of of God's presence once again. But less than halfway through Luke's narrative, Jesus begins to say some strange things in reference to his purpose and to the nature of his kingdom. Three times he predicts that his ministry will not end with a violent overthrow of the Roman authorities, but rather with his own death. The cross becomes language Jesus uses to describe what following him will be like. Or said differently, the cross becomes the very nature of his kingdom. Jesus is seen healing the enemies of Israel by healing a servant of a Roman centurion. He is seen eating with the outcasts and traitors of Israel. He describes his glorious kingdom of God as a small seed or a hidden treasure. And he's seen teaching his disciples to love their enemies. The kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing was not like one anyone, not like anything anyone expected. And in the same way, the joy of the kingdom that he was bringing was not what his disciples expected either. They thought the joy of their salvation would come through Israel controlling their land once again, a violent overthrow of the powers that ruled them and separation from all the people they deemed unclean. But the joy of God's salvation would instead come through the suffering of the king. It was Jesus' suffering and weakness that would be the great victory over the true enemies of Israel and the rest of the world. And all of this, is everybody with me? Yes? All of this comes to a moment in the story, a moment of agony and distress in a moment that we as the church can look at to understand what true joy is, especially the joy of the kingdom of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. The author of Hebrews knows, just as Paul did in his letter to the Philippians, that when the church looks at Jesus, we can see what it truly means to live in the joy of the kingdom. If Jesus came inaugurating the kingdom, the kingdom of God, then he was the fullest embodiment of that kingdom. And it is in Jesus' darkest moment, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, that we as the church can see what it means to have joy in the midst of our trials. 
The 26th chapter of Matthew signals a transition in the life of, and ministry of Jesus by saying, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, Jesus has entered into a new chapter in his story. His ministry is no longer one of teachings and healings and parables and eating, but of divine ministry of self-giving love. After Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples and institutes the sacrament of communion, he takes his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This place must have been a well-known spot for Jesus because Judas knew exactly where he would be. The garden, a garden of olive trees just outside the city with a view of the temple made a beautiful place to pray. And Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him as he went off. With Peter, James, and John with him, Jesus declared, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Very rarely is this moment in the life of Jesus examined for the topic of joy. One would think that being overwhelmed and sorrowful to the point of to death is the exact opposite of a joyful life rather than part of it. Many times this passage is read to meditate on the great theological principles of Jesus being fully God yet fully man and experiencing a profound sense of isolation. Other times this passage is depicted as a model for prayer, always striving to want the will of our Father. Those are very important questions to ask. But at this moment, I want to ask another question. If Jesus is the full embodiment of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that enables people to experience the joys of God's presence, how did Jesus live in a joyful reality while embarking on the most painful moments of his life? This is no small question because we as Christians often assume that we are entitled to a life without pain for we are on the side of light. But when pain arrives at our doorstep, we struggle to comprehend how to live joyfully in the midst of our circumstances. We tell ourselves sometimes, just choose joy. Good advice, but a very difficult reality to comprehend. The emotions that we feel that are connected to the experiences we have are not so easily turned off as, as if we have a switch inside of us that can be flipped from anxiety to happiness. No, it is much more difficult than it is said to choose joy in the midst of our pain. The joyful life that you and I long for and the one that we as the church are called to embody seems to be on the other side of a dark cavern of our circumstances. The question of how Jesus lived his life out in these last hours is important because Jesus provides us with an example of what it means to be truly human. He is both the revelation of God and the revelation of what it means to bear the image of God. It is in his struggles that we learn what it means to have joy in all circumstances. Matthew says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Joy cannot be the absence of suffering. Joy cannot be determined by our external circumstances. Jesus did not pretend that he was happy that he was going to endure the cross. In fact, Jesus vulnerably admitted to both God and his companions the anxiety and sorrow that he was dealing with. It would seem that his suffering was essential for true joy to be found. The joy set before Jesus, the joy that the author of Hebrews speaks about, was the ability to see God working and moving in his sufferings rather than in spite of them. It was joy that enabled Jesus to confidently walk to the cross because death was not the end, but the beginning of a great victory. Jesus saw the world for what it truly was. He saw that through his own weakness, pain, and ultimately his death would be the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus reveals a God who is not like the nations of this world or like you and me either, who seek to rule and reign through force and control, but a God who would go to the greatest lengths to restore his creation to its intended purpose. The joy of the kingdom of God. The joy of the kingdom of, thank you for the break. The joy of the kingdom of God. <laughs> is not a reality void of suffering. Instead, joy is in fact learned through suffering, for it is through his suffering that we are unified with God. The prayer in the garden shows that it is union with God that produces a life of joy, not the circumstances of our lives. Jesus chose to pray in these last moments, not because the prayer was going to get him out of the circumstances, but because in prayer, we can be the most vulnerable before God. Joy is not dependent upon our issues. It's not dependent on our circumstances. It's not dependent upon our ability to control, but on our ability to choose to see God's purpose throughout it all. We, the church, know how the story goes. Am I right? Jesus is brutally executed at the hands of Rome, and the kingdom of God is thought to be another failed revolution. But the story instead ends with Jesus being raised from the dead, the first of the new creation, life given to the king, victory confirmed, and a people created of those who are made participants in his life. Luke's assumption is that his account of the life of Jesus, he is doing more than just writing down a, a disconnected historical account about some important figure in the first century. No, Luke knows that it is his task to witness to God's desire to save all of creation through the life of Jesus Christ. 
This gospel account is not meant to give the reader some new information or philosophy for them to think about and make a decision whether they want to take or leave it. Luke's aim is to completely transform the way his reader understands the world around them in light of his gospel. Luke's task is to show us how the world is a much different place because of Jesus Christ. Put in the simplest of terms, Luke is teaching us what it means to believe. To quote one of the greatest theologians of this century, believing means being made participants in a way of life unintelligible if Jesus is not our Lord and God. Being participants in this kingdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ allows us to understand that our lives have an incredible purpose. We are made to worship Jesus. We are no longer bound by the lucky draw of a good life or bad life. We have been given a life that does not depend on anything else except our union with Christ and our conversion into his body that we call the church. And it is in this life, this life given to us by King Jesus, that we get to witness to the kingdom realities Jesus ushers in into creation. And this, my brothers and sisters, is what joy is. Joy is the way of seeing everything in our lives as in Jesus Christ, in part of our union with him. Joy is a reality that comes to the church when they are trained to see the circumstances they go through as the means God uses to conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. Joy is a trust that no matter what we may go through in this moment of time, God will have the last word. Joy can never be the absence of pain or suffering because it is in these places that the church is able to see the faithfulness of God in the darkness. Joy is the gift of seeing. The church trained to see is a church who is made participants in the way of Jesus. When the church sees rightly, she becomes a people who reconcile with others because by this everyone will know we are, we are Jesus' disciples. When the church sees rightly, she is a people who choose to love her enemies for it is God who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When the church sees rightly, she takes care of orphans and widows because the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. And when the church sees rightly, she can experience joy in the midst of her sufferings because she considers it pure joy whenever she faces trials of many kinds because she knows the testing of her faith produces perseverance. We began with the letter to the Philippians, and I think it is fitting that we return to it. Before Paul says to rejoice, he says this. And meditate on this scripture for just a second longer than you normally would. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
for Paul, the joy of the kingdom, his message to this small church comes through union with Jesus, union with his way of life, union in his sufferings, and ultimately union in his resurrection. Paul's trials and the trials of the Philippians and our trials in here today are not roadblocks keeping us from a life that we have a right to in Christ. No, the trials that they and we are facing are part of being in Christ and being participants in his sufferings. Only through this type of union can the church truly call themselves disciples of Jesus. We are Christians, which means we worship a crucified God, and that takes some getting used to. The beauty is, is that in our worship of this crucified God, in our participation with him, we get to experience true joy. Although the sufferings in the presence may be severe, they are not the last word. Joy allows us to see our lives as unified with God himself and experience the fullness of his glory and grace. Joy is the gift of being able to see. Brothers and sisters, the joy that we all so desperately long for is not a joy that comes from a painless life. Joy does not come to a church that is just another consumer-oriented organization that encourages individual fulfillment. Instead, it comes to a church that is unified and that worships Jesus Christ. Joy does not come to us through our controlling of our lives and making sure that we have all the circumstances in the right place so that we can have fulfillment. For to be a disciple of Jesus means to learn to live without control. The joyful life that we all long for is one that only comes through union with Christ and unity with the church, his bride. The church must be a place where individuals are baptized into a body. The church must be a place where suffering and pain are carried together rather than alone. And the church must be a place where we are trained to see our lives as completely transformed by Jesus Christ. We are the church of Jesus, the people of the King. The joy that was set before him is the joy that we have been called to embody a living witness of that we serve a loving God who, no matter our circumstances, will always have the last word. We can have joy because we are loved by the God of all creation revealed in Jesus Christ. And to that we say, come Holy Spirit, train us to see rightly to see everything as changed by the life of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.